Welcome to the 90 or Nothing podcast. This week, we catch up with Jason Leach. Now, Jason and his wife, Rachel, run a very successful cutting horse business based out of Springshaw in Queensland. Now, Jason has known for his cutting horses and has had a lot of success with them, but he also had a great past life before the cutting horses with a great entertainment show and was very passionate about the Stockman Challenges. Guys, we sure hope you enjoyed this interview and a big thank you to our great sponsors, Camp Draft Training Online and Select Size. Make sure you jump on Camp Draft Training Online's website, www.teamcto.com.au and subscribe. These guys will seriously make the difference in your program. So remember, when spurring and jerking just ain't working, subscribe at www.teamcto.com.au. Well, g'day guys. We're um, we're up at Capella Showgrounds in Queensland. Uh, we're on a bit of a road trip actually, um, travelling with Linda McCallum, and, and we've caught up with Jason Leach. Um, we've been meaning to get him on this podcast for a while. So yeah, Jason, gl- glad to have you here. Good evening. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, Linda, it's good to have you on the podcast again. This time being on the other side of the mic. Oh, thanks, Paxton. We've um, been having a good trip, and it's good to have Jason here to find out a bit about his backstory. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, well, Jason, why why don't you just take us right from the start, mate? Right, right from the beginning. Where did you, where where did you grow up? Where were you born? Uh, mate, born um, oh, Narrabri, but lived west of Narrabri, a little town called Rowena. Went to school there. Uh, just a awesome place for a kid to grow up. Rowena is a tiny little town, school, post office, store, pretty much it. Uh, went to school there, the whole school was in one classroom, and then at harvest time, the school used to double, so we'd get half the kids in one, and then harvest would be over, and the school would be all back in one classroom, so <laughs> funny little old town, but yeah, it was good. I mean, we used to ride our horses to school, leave them in the churchyard, and saddle them up, ride them home, and you know, just a, just a great place to grow up, and then we moved east to Narrabri, um yeah went to finished high finished uh primary school in Narrabri and went to Narrabri high school for one year and for some crazy reason begged to go to boarding school so I went to Farrah in Tamworth I uh, went there in year eight and begged to leave in year 10 so it was hard to keep happy um and dad said um if you're gonna leave in year 10 you're gonna have to do something in some sort of educational system for a couple more years and I had no way in hell I was like doing year 11 and 12 I was I was a pretty ordinary student um and he had trucks most of his life and had done a lot of work in Queensland and driven past Longreach Pastoral College and heard a lot of good things about the horse course there's a bloke called John Arnold there that had got a very good reputation for that horse course so he he offered that to me and I just jumped at it anything not to go back to school so I went to Longreach Pastoral College for two years and um, Damien Kerr and John Arnold were the horse instructors there, and that was back in the day when oh, they changed it all, and I'm not sure whether that was was to its demise, but you used to just do a two-year course and you did everything from pulling chainsaws to bits to small motors to welding to building to horses, cattle, everything. And it was the best thing for a young fella to get you ready to go into the bush. So, yeah, that was up to that bit, and... So what sort of attracted you to down 
onto the horse course? Were you sort of always around horses at at, um, at an early stage, or what did your parents do sort of at Narrabri? Yeah, well, where we were at um, Rowena, that was a cropping place, and Dad self-confessed the worst farmer in the world, but got attracted to growing crops from seeing a neighbour have a couple of good years, make heap of money, and um, I guess Dad's pursuit for success, <laughs> making money, thought, well, I'll give it a go. Anyway, he self-confessed the worst farmer in the world, so um, he he didn't go that well at farming, and we moved to Narrabri. He bought a place out of the side of Narrabri, and and uh, but but as that, so that's what they were always farmers, and um, but but Mum taught us to ride. She was a great rider herself, brought up in the English style, and and back in the day there was there was she was a very good show jumper, and. Um, yeah, she pretty much taught us to ride. We did the whole pony club thing, went to Collar Inner Ride Pony Club. I remember getting dropped off there in the wool shed. It was out on a private property place. There was just a wool shed we all camped in, and we didn't have a horse trailer, so Dad pulled the decks out of the cattle crate because he had trucks, and we, we jumped the two horses off in the table drain out of the cattle crate. And Yeah, I think we're the only people to show up with two horses on a 44-footer with two decks. <laughs> and... um. Yeah, and then continued that when I moved up to Narrabri, I went to Bogabri Pony Clamp and, and very involved in that and very fortunate, you know. You know, we, we, we always had good, quiet ponies around. We never had horses of any breeding. We never, none of my family did competition. My mum had done show jumping when she was young, but, um, yeah, not, not nothing um, was, was driven as far as competing with us. We just had horses with with no breeding and and hardly a name and and um and we always looked after good quiet horses with plenty of opportunity we were pretty fortunate yeah right so then sort of from farrow you went up to longreach what was it like obviously it was a good course but sort of what was the attraction to go up there oh i think the attraction like i didn't you know i was i was a you know by then a, a young cocky kid that just thought the world um was waiting for me to get out into it and I was just going to do all sorts of things, you know, full of dreams and the world was your oyster. And then I just, that was almost a bit of a check that I couldn't, um, you know, go out into the world. I wanted to go to the, go up north. My brother had worked at Van Rook Station up in the Gulf and my brother was a lot less opinionated than me and a lot, lot smarter. So he was allowed to go up there and dad pretty much said to me, you're going to spend two years in the, in the educational world. Cause if you go to the Gulf now, someone's going to choke you. And, um, <laughs> I think he was pretty right. So I'd say I was pretty good at voice. But yeah, so I nothing really attracted me that other than it was an option. But when I got there, the horse course was just it was just the biggest blessing for me because oh John and Damien are two phenomenal horsemen and um, you know, John Arnold, I, I still to this day say he was one of the best influences I could have because he just wouldn't if you were keen, he would never knock you back. I, I showed up at the yards. I was never much of a sportsman and I'm well, not very good at it and um I'd show up the horse yards every afternoon when I went to Farrah. Um, I missed year seven, so any bush kid that didn't play sport um, sort of was away, and I got there and, um, you know, and um, you know, you, you jump in and play footy and what. I didn't even know the rules for the first year, so I wasn't much good. So I used to go to the farm every day at Farrah. That was what got me through that, was that, that agri the farm down there and going to annoy old Pete Maher, the, 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 the old mate down there, and he was always good to me. And... and um, so yeah, the horse course at Longreach just I used to annoy the crap out of John Arnold all the time and I end up making a couple of saddles with him after hours and he if you were keen, he'd help you. Um, 
Yeah, and after the long reach, I actually went to work for Damien. He offered me a job. Where was that? So um, Damien did a show at the Stockman's Hall of Fame, which is right next door to the college oh, that, that, that's now closed, which is a great shame, but that's another issue. Um, but Damien offered me a job, um, and and I think Damien knew that I probably I probably need to get out of the college because I hadn't yet seen the world. Um, and he, he gave me an option. He said, you can go to tell Dora, his cousin's place, uncle's place, uh, and, or his, his, his father's place, Dagworth. And he said, if you go to Dagworth, you can just go and help muster for the shearing, that 30,000 sheep. And he said, if you want to, you can come back and help me with this show here at the Hall of Fame. So I took the option of um, go to Dagworth and then come back to the um, work at the Hall of Fame. I think by then, being a bit of a attention seeker, it already set into me, and I thought performing in front of a bunch of tourists would be pretty, pretty good. Kick me ego up even a bit more, so I took that option. Um, I didn't last. I went to Dagworth for a bit, and we mustered and whatnot, and I sort of somehow cut half me hand off with a saw trying to fix a wooden slat in the shearing shed, so I actually missed shearing. We got all the sheep in, but missed the shearing. Might have been a bit of a cunning move. Didn't like Rouse about him much. Um, so I flew home, that fixed up, and then I come back to the Hall of Fame, and I just, I didn't, Damien and his sister Miriam were both very talented horse people and dog people, and they did a, an amazing show at the Hall of Fame every, every day through the tourist season, and I would just break in horses for a bit of money on the side and do this show with them, just played a, played a very small part in wrangling the crowd up. You'd walk around and crack a whip and, and just try and wrangle the crowd up and tell them there's a show out the back here in a minute. And so I did that for just one season. And, um, and, and when I was at the college, probably what led to the next step is uh, my dad went to a Ray Hunt clinic at Corindai at Theo Hill's place. And it was only through chance that, that, Ray found out Dad was driving to Longreach for the clinic that we'd organised to, to have Ray Hunt at Longreach College when I think I must have been there in my second year. So I'd already sort of knew who Ray Hunt was. Um, Damien had worked for Ray Hunt years ago. John Arnold would use a lot of his theories. But Ray had done a clinic at the um, college, so I'd met him. And I was lucky enough that it was only by chance Ray had had heard that dad was driving to Longreach and um, dad offered him a lift. So Ray actually come and stayed at home at mum and dad's place for a few days, rested up here at emphysema and needed a few days to rest and poke up to um, Longreach and did that clinic. And yeah, then I went and worked for Damien. But because I, I guess I kept hearing this name, Ray Hunt, I thought, geez, I wonder if I get a job with him. So yeah, that was later in the piece. I'm just trying to remember now. I, I think I went home after working for Damien at the Hall of Fame and I was breaking in horses and shoeing horses and I shore sheep for a bit and um, yeah, did all sorts of things. Thought if I, thought if I, I don't know why, I love shearing and, and I was shoeing. And um, I think my very tiny heart muscle after a little while told me that <laughs> I don't want to make a career out of it. Um, anyway, um, so I did that for a while and... Um, Oh, I'm trying to think what I did next, but I somehow ended up doing my own show. I, I think I was mucking around. I was just messing around, playing with any any sort of animal I, I, I'd get my hand on. I, I had the dogs working ducks like I'd seen Damien do. I had the bridle off a few horses, so I had a little sort of bridleless 
routine I could do. And I had a big steer. My dad had always had a, there was a picture hanging on the wall of dad riding a dairy cow at Narrow Rise Show. And my dad was on it. So I figured if dad can break in a steer or heifer or something to ride, I'll try it. So I did that. So where'd and, you get this big steer bullet from? Well, he was my cousin's. And and I just had this idea and so I that I want to do it because I seen dad with a picture on the wall on this on this dairy cow and um so I did that and I even had a sheep that I had on a lead and taught it to do tricks and whatnot because Miriam Miriam Kerr was very very good she had a number of different rams different breeds in the show and had them they'd, they'd run onto the show scene when you called them and Anyway, I... Can, what can you teach a sheep to do? Well, you'd think, it, well, like, when you work, you know, we mustered 30,000 sheep at Dagworth, and you think they're the dumbest things in the world. They're, 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 they're quite intelligent and extremely sensitive. So, you know, you get a sheep to lay down by, by just touching the top of his fleece. You know, he might, have, he might have two and a half inches of fleece on him, and he'd touch it, and he'd bow and walk along his knees. And, yeah, he had all sorts of things. Um Anyway, I had that, and I was just mucking around on the lawn one day, and my uncle was the president of the Narrabri Show Society. And he said, well, you come into Narrabri and do that show like you used to do with Damien. And once again, didn't even think whether I was capable of that, but just jumped at it because it, I, was, I thought, oh, well, you know, imagine what that could lead to in front of all them people and might end up being a big money spinner. So I went in and did that and... And I think, I don't know what the next one was. I don't know whether it was Gunnar, show president was there, and he said, would you come there? What would you want? And I'd done Narrabri for nothing. So I thought, I wonder if I could get $50. So I drove to Gunnar with a truckload of variation of animals and did a <laughs> did a show for $50. And then I think the Maurice Show Society was there. So I think I might have got $100 at the next one. And I think that Kerry Pack is in trouble because here I come and I'm just doubling. <laughs> God. So anyway, I'm not sure how old I was then, but I think by then I must be 21 or 22 and I'm just mucking around with this and and going to these few little country shows doing that. Yeah, right. So then at some point you went across to a little town called Timbertown. Was that in the mix there? Yeah, so that must have just been after that. So I'd done a few shows I don't think I'd done any Royals by then, like Sydney Royal or Adelaide Royal or anything like that. But yeah, somehow I got to Timbertown, which is a village set in the 1800s, so I didn't fit in at all. <laughs> but the council had closed the tourist park. Private investors had bought it, and they must have took a risk and said, we've got to get something different in here to get tourists in the door. So they employed me to do three shows a day. I did one with the dogs and ducks, one with the horses, and one with the bullocks. So the bullock I used to ride around. And I can remember just being like a broken tape recorder every day, saying the same thing three times a day. And you became brain dead, but you learn how to be a showman. You had to make sure that every show you did, the audience felt like that was the first show you've ever done. And you were talking directly to them. So you learn how to be a like a robot that you just put on a show mode, which you basically learn how to be an actor. Um, so I was there for a good season, and then I reckon I must have thought, no, I'm, I want to see if I can get a job and go to the States, and I, I, I'd sort of, I knew what cutting was then, I think, when I was at Longreach College, I may have seen my first ever performance horse magazine, I'm not sure what it was called back then, but I saw a picture, oh, I didn't know who it was, but in the end, it was a famous picture of Graham Amos on Freckles Oak, and 
the horse was turning around and he had one hind leg in the air and he was half bent through the turn like a snake. The horse had his ears laid back and there was sand flicking everywhere and the horse was on his belly. And then there was this steel-faced mousy sitting on his back like he could have, he could have been riding in the mailbox. There just wasn't a care in the world. The confidence exuded in him. It was, it was, it was amazing. So never been to a cutting. Didn't know what it really was, but I saw that picture. You know, I'd heard a bit about it, and um, I thought, wow, imagine if you could go to it. It just seemed like the next thing to do. I I didn't get to go to the golf and throw balls and do all that stuff, so the next thing seemed to be go to America and go to a cutting horse trainer. So Peter Dowling and Lindsay Knight set me up with Chris Cox, who was a cutting horse trainer in Florida. And um, Chris Cox is formerly from Hilden and is now a very, very well-known horseman, not just cutting horse personality, but a, but a horseman won the way of the horse, goodness knows how many times. And, yeah, I just rang him up and went over there and went to Florida and worked for Chris for a bit. So were you, like, mid-20s there, or...? I reckon I must have just been 21, because I know when I went over there... I know when I went over there, they said, you've got to be 21, otherwise you can't go into a bar... And not that I, I don't even think I drank back then, to be honest. Um, I didn't drink for years. Um, Why was that? I don't know whether I was just too tight or... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think from memory, I still to this day, as you know, I don't drink beer. I hate beer. So I think everyone just um, kept forking a beer into me and I hated it. And someday, one day someone handed me a rum and I liked it. and probably wasn't very good. Um, but anyway... I just, yeah, I went and worked for Chris, and I remember, yeah, I must have been 21. Uh, two things I got told, you got to be 21 because you can go into a bar. And the other thing was, when you're Australian, you land to America, as soon as you land there, the women will just run at you. <laughs> and I found out that was very untrue. <laughs> so how long were you there for? Oh, I worked for Chris for a number of months, and I had a mate that, it was tough to get over there, though, back in, I don't know if it still is, like, Aussies would go over there on a tourist visa and they might have lined up a sneaky job or something. And I had a mate go over there and they sent him back. So I th he, he told me where he was going to work for Buck Brenneman, another good good horseman, does clinics and whatnot. So I went from Chris's supposedly to go to Buck's, but he didn't have, he didn't have, he wasn't ready yet. So I went to his neighbor's place for a month and it was while I was there, I went to a Ray Hunt clinic and um, I went to lunch with Ray and Carolyn, and Ray's emphysema was playing up with him. And I was just in the cult starting class, and I didn't have enough money to go in the cult starting class. And, and a bloke said to me, I'll pay half your cult starting fee. If you'll do it, I'll supply the horse, and I'm getting something out of them. Yeah, so I, the only reason I went in the cult starting class at the last minute, that guy offered that deal. So I went in it. And it just so happened, I was just in the right place at the right time. I was by no means, a, you know, any any standout at all. But I was young, you know, and if they said to do something, I would run, you know, a bit of the old Australian mentality, trying to trying to impress or someone. If someone said something in the yards, you'd run and do it. And Carolyn took me to lunch, and I told her I was looking for a job. And she said, I'm going to take you to lunch. When I tell you, ask Ray for a job. So we went to lunch. She kicks me under the table and says, ask him now. And I just crap myself. I don't know, ask him now. And anyway, so I finally had the courage. I said, oh, Mr. Hunt, I was just wondering if you'd, you know, 
near where I could um, work. I'm really keen to this. Anyway, Ray was good. He dropped me at his son-in-law's place, Bill Van Norman, um, who had won Cow Palace reigning cow horse deal. We got horses ready for a sale in Elko, Nevada. And um, then he picked me up. Ray and Carolyn picked me up, took me down the road, did a few clinics, Flagstaff, Arizona, here and there, everywhere. Then he dropped me at Bruce Laird's, well, which was Twistleman Ranch in California, where Bruce Laird worked. Worked there. We winter, did the winter time there. Ray and Carolyn did the winter there. And we were, I was just with him on and off for a while. He and Carolyn were just phenomenal to me. And Ray's emphysema was playing up, so I was just his legs for a bit. So if someone was having trouble with a horse, you know, like we had a Mustang at, at a at a clinic that this lady owned and the Bureau Bureau of Land Management, the BLM over there, so that's not Black Lives Matter, um, <laughs> the BLM over there would get Mustangs in and to, to save the Mustangs, their idea was adopt them and have it, they had like an emotional sell to city people, like save a piece of America's history, adopt the Mustang. So you can imagine some of the naive people that would show up at a Ray Hunt clinic with a seven-year-old Mustang stallion, and this woman would say, I got him home and opened the door of the gooseneck, and he ran over me and went through one fence and another fence and another fence, and then when we finally corralled him, he tried to eat me. <laughs> so I know we had this seven-year-old Mustang start at this clinic, which was an amazing experience, and in, you know, in, in a few hours, we had him sailed and whatever, and then not long had him rode, and by the end of three days, you know, this clueless woman, with all due respect, but it was it was amazing that she could end up with a horse like that. Anyway, got him got him pretty good. But so yeah, I was just his legs because Ray was out of air. He you know, he couldn't do that groundwork. So I was fortunate enough we'd go down the road a while and I came home, renewed my visa and went back again. We had a big sale or they had a big sale at the Four Sixes ranch in conjunction with the Four Sixes and I got to show in ranch horse competitions over there with a mare that used to flip over backwards and I bought a cheap. She had some cow horse breeding and I'd do the ranch horse competitions and sold her through the sale and and just yeah, luckiest young fella in the world. I just yeah. I just couldn't believe that I was working for those people, Ray and Carolyn Unreal. So Jace, I have actually heard you refer to a lot of um, Ray's teachings throughout the time that I've known you. So he was obviously one of the a very influential person in your life from what you have um, just described tell us a little bit about you know what what was the essence of his program that I guess I feel like you've adopted a lot of it but what's the main thing you know, there's a lot of what he does that you talk about a lot when when you're explaining your program yeah um, look raise 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 deal was um, it was it was it was pretty simple but at the same time, it was simple when you understood how a horse thought, and that was his thing. He was he was trying to get people to understand from the horse's point of view. So he'd say, and I've you know heard it a thousand times, and honestly, you know, every year, you know, how many years? I'm 45 now, so it's been over 20 years since I was around him, and I just feel that I'm only just beginning. You know, I've made a few changes here recently, and I I can't wait to see. I don't know why it's taken me this long. Whether it's in fact I turned 45 and I'm change his perspective I don't know but I'm, I'm still understanding things that he told me then but look some of the things you'd say over and over it's controlling the life in the body down through the legs to the feet and when I heard that first clinic I'm like why does this guy keep talking about the feet 
I've been seeing them reining horses slide here and there and them cutting horses get down there and there. I just want to, you know, I want to spin a horse around and make a heap of dust and leave big number 11s in the ground. So I'd just be drilling a horse over and over. And I'd hear him, heard him say a thousand times, Jason, slow down. Jason, do less. And it wasn't until later on, Carolyn broke it down. She says, you know, what he's trying to say, Jason, you, you kind of got a little bit to offer and you get things going real good for you. And just when you get it to where that horse you've encouraged him to try you go one step further and you discourage him to try so ray ray was always um was was always looking at it from a horse's point of view and about getting him to decide to help you do a job he'd say fix it up so he could find it you make the right thing easy and the wrong thing difficult and most of us would say oh you make the right thing easy and the wrong thing hard and he'd say no 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 i didn't say that make the right thing easy and the wrong thing difficult if you make it hard then self-preservation shows up. When self-preservation shows up, that's him thinking about protecting himself. He said, pretty hard to teach a horse something when he's trying to protect himself from you. So when Ray would start with a horse, he'd talk about getting a horse to turn loose. So more terminology, I had no idea what he meant. So turn loose, what did he mean? And he and, and well, I think what he meant was a horse has you know thousands of years of instincts to protect himself from a predator. And I think we've all, with the knowledge these days and YouTube, and I mean, we, we've got so much information at our fingertips that we, we all know a horse is, is a prey animal, we're a predator, and when he, when he looks at you, that's what he sees. So it's getting him to turn loose, is getting him to, to, to just consider that the human could be a decent guy and he's all right and he's not a threat. It doesn't mean that self-preservation has been removed and, and will always be absent. It just means him considering that you could be all right and to check this guy out in the middle of that round pen, get him to turn out to you, lick his lips, maybe drop his head and consider that this guy could be all right. So self-preservation wasn't at the forefront of that horse's mind and that's how it would start. And then Ray would 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 just chip away to where he would expose horses to, to, to new things in a way that a horse could accept it and then he, he would know a, a line about how much a horse could cope with for today, and then he'd, he'd leave it alone. You know, when someone someone said once at a clinic, he did something that was quite quite amazing, got a big result pretty quick, and they said, how did that work out so good, Ray? And he said, well, I, I guess that was on the part of my good judgment. And he said, well, how do I get good judgment? And he said, well, through experience. He said, well, how do I get experience? He said, through bad judgment. <laughs> So Ray would say a lot of these things and a lot of the time it would infuriate people because he's like, why doesn't he just give us the direct answer? But Ray had so much respect for the horse and I was lucky enough to see him do some clinics where he kind of spelled things out, but then he couldn't sleep at night because he thought, no, that human got it handed to him, handed to him and they're going to go home and they're going to use that now and overuse it and they're not going to find much more because I handed that to him. So he would give them, a lot of the times, a riddle, something here and there, and the human would have to search and work at it. So Ray was a tough guy that worked hard, and and if someone showed up at a clinic with the attitude, I've paid you my money, you tell me what I want to hear, oh man, that would rile him up. So, so, so Ray, a lot of the time, you know, may have come across like he was tough enough, but it, it was from his respect to the horse over the over the years um him seeing things handed to the human and they didn't have to work at it enough 
so that he would want people to to try and try again make some mistakes and um, try and fix it up so that horse could find it and what we're lucky to always say as I said make the right thing easy and the wrong thing difficult allow him to work at it fix it up so he can find it develop a learning frame of mind so there's another one what's a learning frame of mind once once you get that horse turned loose then you can start to teach him something so what do we do to teach him something we apply pressure and the pressure is is not to force him to do it it's the pressure whether you wave your flag at his hindquarters or you you pick up the lead rope to get him to lead to you or you pick up a rein to get him to back up the pressure causes a horse to think of doing something different because a horse would rather he's a living feeling decision making animal so he'd rather have the release the the, the absence of that pressure so the pressure doesn't for we don't use it like we force him it's to get him to to cause him to think of doing something different than he's doing now so if i pick up the bridle reins to ask horse to back up for the first time i just create a feel so we create a feel with the bridle or the halter or whatever we're riding him in hackamore or whatever and ray would fix it up with a light feel and he'd wait he'd say fix and wait so he might be sitting there five seconds maybe 10 seconds and the human says well He's not doing anything. I'll pull harder. And Ray'd say, no, 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 don't pull harder. Because then he'll know that that softness doesn't mean anything. That you'll go ahead and do more. Allow him to wait. Allow him to work at it. So we're sitting there thinking, well, that horse hasn't done anything. He's not working at it. But if you looked inside that horse's brain, if you could sort of imagine that, he'd say it's like turning a clock over. What's, what's going on behind the clock? On the surface, there's not a lot going. Hands don't look like they're moving real fast. But at the back, there's a whole bunch of cogs going round and round, and there's a whole bunch of action. He said it's the same in this horse's mind. He's sitting there, and the more it goes, the more he's more he's thinking, well, this is not working out for me. Leaning, sitting here leaning on this pressure is not working out for me. So in a little while, that horse might just rock his weight back, and, and Ray would release. And they'd say, well, he didn't back up. And he said, yeah, but it was a small change and a try. So... If I release, that horse might think, well, that didn't work out too bad. Maybe I should search in that area again. So he'd fix the feel up again. He might sit there another five seconds. And next thing you know, that horse moved his weight. And this time he moved his weight quite a bit. And he'd release. And that people would say, but he didn't move his feet again. He said, yeah, but it was another small change and try. He'd do it again and he'd only hold for two seconds that time that horse backed up. And he'd release again. So he said, I fixed it to where that horse said, Ray, if I move my weight any further back, I'm going to have to move my feet. And Ray said, good idea. So it's understanding how to get a horse in a learning frame of mind. So from that day when you did that first time, when you fixed and waited, and that horse found a release, he goes, aha. So when a feel comes up, there is a release there for me. I've just got to find it. So Ray could get a horse. So whenever a new feel came up, it could be it could be anything quite it could be something quite difficult like pushing his hips up underneath him reverse arcing him rolling back whatever anything but that horse was so sure after a period of time and he got more sure all through his life that if a feel is presented by the rider by the captain of this ship there is a release and that horse had a confidence to hang in there if they just search it'll be there because this guy's never lied to me so that was developing a learning frame of mind. And when you understood that, man, that was a big revelation, big thing. Was there a specific moment you remember watching Ray working with any particular horse that sort of stood out to you or, you know, sort of re 
has ignited in your mind a bit? Yeah, look, Ray, I never hardly saw Ray even lope a horse because his emphysema was that bad. He couldn't lope. He couldn't canter a horse. So that's why, once again, I was lucky enough to be there. I'd go canter and put some miles under him. Um, I'll tell you one thing that sticks out to me. He'd ride a mare called April. Um, uh, no, sorry, April was was maybe the grandmother of this thing. Uh, what was this mare's name? Silver. Silver Rug. I think Silver Rug was her name. Um, anyway... Um, she must have been a descendant of a mare called April that, that he had that people used to talk about, that he could lope, he'd lope backwards um, um, like a, um, I can't remember, is it Passage or Piaf? Anyway, um, that was a bit of a challenge one day. Someone said to him, Ray, do you think you'd lope a horse backwards? And he goes, oh, well, I'll give it a try. And he spent a little while. And Anyway, I mean, when people talk about loping horse backwards, they're thinking of them in the loping pen, canning around backwards. Well, it's not quite like that. That's physically, I think, impossible. So, um you know, loping horse backwards, getting into canter or lope on the stop, on the spot, and then just ever so slightly, just manoeuvre backwards a little bit. So, anyway, this mare was a was a descendant out of April, and his grandson Troy Van Norman. I think it was Troy. There was two boys. One was a bronc rider, real fit guy, and um, we were at this horse sale in Elko, Nevada, and Troy and I were talking about. He was talking about Uncle uh, Grandpa Ray. And riding this mare through the sale frame because Ray would just ride horses and flip them. And um, this mare had done clinics with Ray for the three, maybe three years he'd been riding her. And he'd, she'd just flag colts around. So he'd just follow horses around anyone that's seen Ray do a colt stunt clinic. The horse was his leg, so he'd be the whole time a horseback. So he may have cut a colt out at one end if that colt wanted to go this way, he'd jump in front of it. So the only really cutting out practice Ray had had was on this mare was just moving colts around he was never anywhere he could work cows hardly anyway so for the sale preparation troy rode this mare because ray could hardly get out of a lope he'd be out of air and he's kind of snickering we're making a little fun oh what's this big tank gonna be like running a cow down the fence because he ray told him to box a cow at one end and run this cow down the fence like a raining cow horse so he was kind of snickering a little bit and anyway this mare was a big shouldered mare we just we both thought oh this this big tank's gonna look pretty ordinary well he ran a cow down the fence and it went fast and this kid sent it because that's what grandpa ray said and then the cow turned around and it was literally like the horse had snapped in half it went to the ground and i remember like right behind the saddle in that horse's loins it was like a hinge because his hind end just disappeared and it just buried in the ground. And all I could see was this kid's ass and elbows. He was just <laughs> dashboarded. And this mare came back around there with that cow. And this kid's face when he came out of there had a whole new perspective. He's like, wow, <laughs> I better get serious. Grandpa Ray's got this all. So when you talk about something that sticks in my mind, I'd never seen that mare get out of a trot. And I'd seen him jump her in front of a cow. I'd jump her in front of a colt here and there. But he, he had made a a ranch horse or a helper like a handy horse out of this by what it seemed to me like just dinking around but that was ray he he'd get so much done when his body was failing him with um he had a club foot that was giving him trouble he had emphysema you know his body was failing him so he had to find a way to do what he loved which was pretty much just get horses handy that was what what ray liked was getting a good handy ranch horse so you spent your time over there with Ray, and then 
I'm assuming you came back over to Australia. Yeah. What sort of take us from there? What happened? Right. So I guess the second trip come home after that second trip of that sale, and I got discouraged for a bit because I just thought I'm never going to get this because, you know, it takes a long time. Anyone that's worked at getting better at horses it takes a long time, and I, I knew I had a long way to go, and I was a bit discouraged. And Bruce Laird said to me once. Um, he said, I got discouraged too, you know, and he said, um, Carolyn said to me one day that Ray knew this was going to fit me when, when I got it, and that was his words, fit me. Anyway, and um, Bruce had shared the same thing with me, and that just gave me a real lift because I, I, I really, if anything, I was getting to a point I thought I was disappointing Ray because I, you know, I was nowhere near as good as I'd hoped to be or thought I was. So I come home, and I did ask Ray. I'd met Tom Dorrance and Bill Dorrance, and... Um, I asked him what he thought I should do. I said, do you think I should go and work for them or something? And Ray said, nope. He said, you need to go home. You need to get about 20 head of colts, so being breakers, and just get all the experience in the world. And he, and he, and, and he pretty much was saying, you're so damn ambitious. You just do too much. So if you get 20 head, you won't be able to do too much. You'll be busy. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I came home. First batch of horses I did were mob from Durambandia. A six-year-old mare and a five-year-old one, a four-year-old one, and and you know all old things, and and I just did the same thing back in that day, them days. The first ride I'd ride on a horse, I'd ride without a bridle. That was Ray was doing. Seems seems nuts, but Ray used to say, we get them ready to catch, and we catch them. We get them ready to ride, and we ride them. And when you could get a horse ready, and you could read him all right, you know. We, we were riding a horse without a bridle because we without anything on his head because Ray would say that's no good to you anyway if you got him ready to ride um, you, you 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 know pulling on his head ain't going to help you if you went to bucking anyway so as crazy and, and as 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 much as I would not recommend that because because um, you don't want to get someone in trouble for some reason that's what I was that's what I was doing so yeah I broke in horses for all and I started doing. Um, doing that show that I was doing again and I ended up in Scone. How'd you end up down there? Ah, uh, look, I had a, a lady that was helping me that was kind of a manager, I guess, with that show and she was just going to help me try and professionalise it a bit because I was I was pretty rough around the edges and and um, she was the one ultimately to help me land a few gigs at Sydney Royal and Adelaide Royal and things like that. And Because I'd been to Timbertown, now I had a bullock team. I was a very ordinary bullocky. Um, I'd never had leaders. Leaders were the hardest thing to make when you just, you know, we were always so busy doing everything else. So I looked after a little place called Guy Gallon at Scone, broke in horses, ended up breaking in horses for Kerry Packers Polo Farm at Elliston. Went away on weekends doing these shows and, you know, it was a, by then, you know, I'd, I'd certainly had my dad's infatuation with success and making money and, you know, I all I wanted then was, I just wanted to own the biggest place I can imagine I grew up hearing Dad talk about Sydney Kidman and all these people, and so I had kind of an inbuilt thing that that that's what I had to be or wanted to be, needed to be, and um, some sort of king in a grass castle or something. <laughs> so I just went to trying to make as much money as I could, if I'm being honest, and I'm probably probably not supposed to glorify that, but if we're being honest, that's what I was doing. And um, you know, I I drive down to Sydney, had a, you know just gigs. You know, whether it be a show for Fizzy, Vizzy Packaging, that bloke that owns a big company that was putting on a party for his workers. I'd leave Scone at midnight, go down to Sydney, 
do a show, load them back up and get back at two o'clock in the morning. Keep breaking in your horses and, you know, I think I was there five years and I guess I was starting to get a bit of the competition bug then because all I'd ever done was break in young horses. Yeah. So during that time, Jason, I remember um, seeing you play polo as a demonstration on your bullock. Yeah, that would have been at Elliston. I might have done that at a few shows here and there, but I did a did shows Ellis and his for entertainment. So I had a big bullock, Shaba. And I think we him, weighed him at Sydney Royal once at his peak. I think he was 1,100 kilos, just giant for thing. And yeah, he was just part of the show. But yeah, I'll tell you the one I stick and ball, I played polo one, was the Brahmin one. I later on used to jump on him and he'd do a working pattern. I could do a flying lead changes on him. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, he was the one I played polo on because Shaba, when I broke him in, they get dull really quickly when you get them quiet. I think anyone that's had a big pet bullet potty or something to know that. So he did more tricks. He'd stand on a milk crate, take a bow at the end of the show and do that stuff. But the Brahmin, I left a little bit feral and um, had him real, like a little bit haunted. So it like, like, no, just didn't get him that quiet and would feed him plenty of grain and he'd even half hump up and buck a little bit. And I left him like that so I could gallop him around and that was more his deal. So yeah, he's the one I play polo on. So it seems like you've trained nearly any animal that there is to um, to be able to perform in some way or another. During this time, were you camp drafting and competing in, in that arena? I must have started because Bruce McNaughton was up the road and he's a bloke I just admired. I used to, to me, his horses in the yard were different to anyone else. So by then, the whole cutting idea was definitely, you know, I knew what it was. I'd worked for Chris Cox, cow horse thing in the States with the reigning or ranch horse competitions. So... Bruce was up the road. Um, I think I must have went in a few drafts. I drafted an Amiga mare. Um, I was born and raised in stock horses, so that's all I had. Um, but yeah, certainly looking at a few quarter horses, went to a few drafts, but I was very ordinary, ordinary drafter. I didn't didn't understand how to ride a course, be very aggressive. And, and by then, I never even really learned to use my feet much. I, 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 was, I was a long way from a good performance horse trainer or rider. So where did you go from there? You were down there in the Hunter. You'd had all those influences and done, been in the performance world um, doing your shows. What happened next? Oh, I think, um, um, I, yeah, I, would, I must have done a few drafts and I you know, had the idea I'd like to compete here or there, but I just the only way I was making money is breaking horses. So, um, yeah, I might have done a few drafts. I think I did that one of them, the Manfredna River thing when I was in um, Scone. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Where did you sort of, where did the Stockman's Challenge influence come into? Where did you get the idea to go down and do those? Um, I don't know where I got the idea. I knew, I sort of knew they existed. By then, I think we'd, you know, Australian Horseman Magazine might have come out then. And that was, that was a big thing. You used to pick that up and you'd see pictures of whatever else was doing and then, and um, I think I think we're all being human. You judge, you judge what everyone else is doing. You compare yourself. So I'd see pictures of what everyone else is doing. Oh, man, I I want to do that. So I guess I guess I was just drawn to that because I you know someone referred to me as jack of all trades, master of none. And I thought, well, maybe that's maybe that's what I'm going to go in that man's no river thing. If you're just sort of good on average at everything, you can do all right in that thing. So I went down there the first year and. I think I might have got second. I had a horse called Denmark Shame. He, he wasn't a brilliant horse. He just was a decent horse. And I, I'm just, I, I think I went two more times, but I took my paint horse. And where did he come from? So my paint horse I bought at a yearling sale when I came back from America. 
at the Painless Nationals. For some reason, I just wanted to paint for the flashy sort of thing for this show. So I specifically bought him for the show. I'd had him for a few years doing the show, so he did the whole bridalist routine, laid him down, did that whole thing. And that's why he was probably a bit handy at that story of a thing. You know, the bareback class, I suppose, always picked up an extra few points with him. He has an interesting name, Jase. Yeah. Well, the locals named him Two Dogs. I think you've probably heard the joke Two Dogs. I'm not sure if it's appropriate to tell. But... <laughs> the locals in the Hunter. Yeah. That was I, a bit nasty, I, I thought. I can't remember. His name was LBS Two Time in First Print. So there's no way in heck I was going to call him that. So I called him Paint. And then for the show, we wanted to be a bit cheeky. So we called him Two Dogs. And um, yeah, if you've heard the joke about Two Dogs Knotted, um, <laughs> yeah. You know where it comes from. Very good. So then if you move along, did you go, when did you end up going and um, was it, you went and worked for Todd, was that next? Yeah, so I must have, I must have, well I know, I've got to thank Bruce McNaughton for putting me onto that. Um, I was, I was, I was a single bloke that I suppose looking to do something more with performance horses, you know, which gave the opportunity to move anywhere. Bruce McNaughton said, give Todd Graham a ring. He said, I was sitting next to him. At a wedding, I think it was Ben Hall's wedding, he said, I was sitting next to Todd Graham, and he said, you know what, anyone wants to ride two-year-olds? And Bruce said, call him. And I said, no way, I'm not going to call him. He said, I'd be, I'd be you. I don't know enough, near enough about that. And, and Bruce kept up, and he said, call him. So I did, went up there for trial, and bugger me dead if he um, wasn't lucky enough to do that. So I, I moved to Tarum and worked for worked for Todd. So how long were you there for? Um, I was only there nine months, which was, was, probably, was probably way too premature leaving. But by then, I was 28. Um, I kind of sort of wanted to keep feeling the progression of my financial journey because I'd, I'd had a few little investments. I'd owned, I bought a butcher shop in Narrabri and I'd bought 12 acres in Scone that I called 12 acres. If you drive up to Ellison, you'll see, you'll see the sign 12 acres there. And yeah, I'd owed a bit of money and I had this whole, this whole idea that I was going to go places quick. So yeah, look, Todd, Todd uh, and Kylie were, were, were brilliant to do me to give me that opportunity, and and um, I guess another opportunity just rose up to take my own horses, and I wasn't available there, so I, I went out on my own after nine months, which really was probably way premature, but for some for some reason it worked. Now, did you step into a few horses straight away? Yeah, well, I was lucky enough. I guess at the time cutting, I don't know whether cutting was taking off or or what, but I I, I don't know why people offered to send me a horse I, I, I've always considered myself just an arsey but lucky I seem to have luck at that first cutting show and so I went to Todd's with two horses acres of lace that Roy Storney for one of the first blokes ever to say what do you want to do I said I want to go cutting he said well here you go go and buy a yearling and he bought a yearling and and like that bloke just helped me so I went to Todd's with acres of lace owned by Roy Storney and um, trained it and and then yeah I was just lucky at that first show we had a Spinifex mare that was a catch ride for Todd owned by Alice Grunwald and ended up winning Gun to Windy for Charity Honor so I was just just a lucky bugger you know and you know the bit of luck I had at them Snow River things and the, and the cutting and and um, I suppose I, 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 to be honest I'll tell you what I reckon why I was so lucky for getting clients I learnt how to communicate doing that shows and that every client said when I would ring them every week 
and I'm, I'm not having a stab at any of my fellow cutlass trainers, but they would, they'd say, you're the only bloke that ever bloody rings me. And that was the big complaint. So because I knew I was, I couldn't believe I was feeling this, this sort of ladder of progression. I felt like I was going somewhere. I'd ring them and I'd tell them what happened with their horse this week. And they just loved it. So whether it be the late Brian Cobcroft or um, the Mitchells or Marsh Carney, one of the first blokes ever to send me a horse, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably way worse on the phone now, but I'd ring them every week, and I think that's what helped me, communication. Well, I think you make your own luck in life. I don't think there's anything really where you can say, I just got lucky. You know, it, it comes down to hard work and dedication and commitment over a lot of years. But um, Acres of Lace, she went on. She was a great camp mare, wasn't she? Yeah, well, because Royce Dorney was a camp drafter, and all he wanted to do was see his horses go. He was a bit sick then, and he just wanted to see his horses go, and he, he, he didn't care... Who had them? He said, just do something with them. So he didn't care if I was going cutting or whatever. And I just said, I was a bit interested in the challenges. I'd been to Cloncurry once with a useless horse, but it was to do the show. I did the entertainment there. And the only reason I went in the challenge because I was there. <laughs> it was a horrible horse. But I said to him, we should whip the mane off this thing and um, take it to Cloncurry. We'd have a shot. And, and once again, I was just lucky and we won it. So that just was made Royce's. I can just remember him. He's, he's, his son was there they flew up for the final and it just it was one of the best days one of the best wins i've ever had because he died after not long after that and all he ever wanted to see with his horses go and then probably even better than that his grandson lewis took that horse and really really did well with it and um it, it just was a big step up for him so that was very rewarding mm. what would you say was the most um influential or, or pivotal horse that there has been in your lifetime if you had to name one yeah pretty easy for me i thought about a few good ones i've had but then the late latter years the more i've learned the best horse i've ever rode is oaks and ashes uh, and he's the first horse i won a classic on i think at tamworth the first major age event i won at tamworth but that horse won cuttings and i i you know i was clueless i didn't i didn't know enough about cutting. I was at Todd Graham's for nine months. I should have stayed there for nine years. Um, you know, I didn't know much about cutting and I was trying to do things, you know, at the start of this when I mentioned, I feel like, you know, I feel like it, my cutting career is just beginning now because some of that stuff Ray was talking about um, is only just coming to fruition now. And so with with um, Oaks and Ashes was so early in the piece, I had an idea how I wanted it to look. I had very little knowledge and understanding and I expected him to figure it out. And that horse kept winning. And he filled in all the gaps. So I, if another horse like that come along, I'd hope to think that I could offer that horse a lot better deal. That horse sometimes won in spite of me, not because of me. And that, yeah, that's just the truth. That's, yeah. So, Jason, from just talking to you now, you seem like you're just a very driven kind of person. Sort of where, where did this drive sort of come from? Yeah, um, well, well, um, we, as you know, we've we've talked about this before, a bit on personal stuff, and I probably wish I could come up with some cliche BS answer for that. And as you know, I, I, um, I, I, you know, my answer to this, I think my drive a lot of time was unhealthy because I think, as I've said to you, and I, I might get. I might get shot for saying this out loud because no one ever talks about it, but I definitely think in Australia, in the bush, there's a thing when you leave home 
and, and, and I'm not only saying for blokes, but when you leave home, to prove your self-worth, you need to get out there, you need to bite off more than you can chew, and you need to chew like buggery. And, the, and, and there's certainly a financial element to it to prove yourself. There's a success and financial element to it. And I watched my dad do it most of his life, and, and keep in mind my mum and dad are two of the most beautiful, hearted people you'll ever come across. But I watched my dad torment himself, chasing success all the time. And um, and I de- so when you say drive, I I was lucky enough, mum and dad raised us well and, and we were privileged to have parents as good as them. And they said, do what you love. So yes, my drive came from horses because I loved them. But really my, my drive, if you're talking about real drive, was probably a little bit unhealthy that to find your self-worth, you've got to go and borrow a big heap of money, get a big heap of country, and the more debt you owed, the more um, the more risks you took, the more worthy you were. And if you could cope it and cop with it, cop it, then that's what got your respect. That's what I'd seen. You know, I'd seen my dad put himself under so much pressure that you know a lot, a lot of a lot of blokes wouldn't have coped, and he and he did. And that's why we admired him so when you say drive and you know that answer's all very a bit probably a bit too deep <laughs> but you and i have talked about this and um that's just the truth so there was there's a number of different driving factors i loved horses my parents were good to me and said do what you love but you know there was a long period and i i don't i feel just feel like um i'm probably getting back to enjoying them now there was a long period where i was training horses and i was just using that as a factory to try and prove myself and they were just each horse was a number you know the days where i had 50 horses in work and you just go from one to the other one to the other and you were just churning them out so yeah that was that was probably a lot that kept you going was that idea that silent sort of a inherent idea you had um and i guess i only brought it up because i've said to you before you should never say something like that out loud because you'd get shot. And here I am saying it on broadcast. <laughs> so was for you, is the success, was it more in the dollar achievement than the titles? Because you, if we could list, you know, you've won camp drafts, you've won stockman's challenges, you've won futurities. There's not a lot that doesn't go beside Jason Leach's name. So it wasn't, success to you was not... The title success to you was the accumulation of of value yeah i think i think it, it's all of the above i think when you when you're in a bit of a selfish i mean i think we you know we, we live in a pretty selfish sort of a selfish sort of a world it's a lot about self you've only got to you know if you you've only got to look up you know podcasts on 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 how to get more self-confidence and self this self that so I just think when you when that you know you've chose that mindset and at the end of the day that's what I'm saying I chose that I, I was lucky I was raised well I had great parents um, but you only got to look around you and you can you can certainly adopt that sort of um, self-worth drive type thing and and I think all of the above it was it was titles it was just a constant search I think when you talk to those people that have made a lot of money they get to a point where they find out that that that's sometimes can be meaningless and um yeah so all the titles that was definitely it like i was you know whether it be the first thing i went in was a draft wanted to win a draft and it took me ages and i can remember when i won my first one at musselbrook and i was lucky enough to win a saddle a three-round novice at at um musselbrook 
and I can remember the speech I said, like Rachel Hunter's shampoo ad, won't happen overnight, but it will happen. It was just such a relief <laughs> to, to win something. But then it doesn't last long. You've got to prove yourself more, haven't you? So, you know, I've, I've got some good friends. We talk about this, Cameron Parker. I talk about this, um, you know, personal sort of stuff and John Mitchell. And, um, you know, John Mitchell told me that Matt Gain said once, cutting, this would be the best sport in the world if the bloody result didn't matter so much. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I think when you go competing and you're competitive, and I'm sure everyone has to, everyone has to deal with it to a level but you you if you if you think that the result result defines you at every competition you'll you'll drive yourself half you know in, in an un, half nuts in an unhealthy sort of a manner yeah so how did how has your outlook on life changed then in the last sort of few years have you just sort of you know, come to that realization by going through all that process. Yeah, well, I think it's it's that's, that's another sort of typical sort of thing in that a life journey. Ray Hunt used to say, well, "Why does it take a lifetime to learn how to live a lifetime?" And um, <laughs> you know, um, you just got to go through it, haven't you? And and um, I guess the half the reason I answered honestly like that is I just think that's the thing we've got to be got to be honest. I'm a father now, and that certainly is one of the things that might have softened me a little bit. Um, you know, I've 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 watched my parents make it through thick and thin. I've, I've probably, um, I think, I certainly left home as a bit of a, uh, bit of a chauvinistic sort of a male that you know, a male sort of a dominant type attitude. That um, you know, my mum was a, a lady that had three meals a day ready on the table, and 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 the man was the provider, and that's the way it should be. And I certainly think I've got a different perspective now. And um, marrying a strong woman certainly helps you find that. And um, but that that's also one of the things you know I can remember, you know, my wedding day, the best day of my life, and I remember looking down the aisle, seeing my wife come, and I just thought, what on earth are you doing here? I just couldn't believe that um, that I was that lucky. And and um, when you when you make them, uh, you know, when you when you make a marriage worth work through through difficulties which everyone has, and then you you work at being, you know, you you, you try and work at being a better husband, better father, which I've got a long way to go on both areas. Um, <laughs> You, you just you, you change your perspective, don't you? So when you say, how have you managed it, mate? By no way have I got any of the above worked out. You, um, I, I just think um, talking about it, being honest with it. I have a, I have a little phone hook up with a bunch of um, horse trainer-like mates Wednesday night, and I just look forward to every Wednesday nights. And I was worried when, when Rob Leach asked me to, to join in that thing. There's a bunch of guys on it. I was worried it was going to be a sort of a religious thing, and and um, my mum's always been wary of a religion, but was a great, great example of faith. And um, you know, my mum, I think, is one of them, anyone knows mum agrees a great example of a, um, of a of a wonderfully balanced person. So, look, I've had a I've had a great examples. I probably don't have an excuse to to um, get off to have been off track much <laughs> so um when you say how do you manage all that stuff that you know i don't I, I certainly don't feel guilty for being so damn competitive and determined the way it is you just sort of refine it a little bit more to hopefully a healthier lifestyle don't you sure and so now uh life life goes on and it's obviously a difficult time at the moment with the covid crisis but what sort of the future look for you guys what are you sort of at goals or ambitions ahead yeah um look we um we 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 still very um ambitious and we're looking to buy more 
uh, some more country. We're, I'm very fortunate. My um, my my parents-in-law, Rachel's parents, are are um, have been phenomenal help to us. Um, whether it be guarantors on a loan or or helping us and advising us, my my father-in-law's um, got a you know just got a great perspective on on approaching risks, looking at everything, and um, he's been a tremendous influence. Um, my wife is an extremely talented Brahmin breeder and horsewoman alike, and so we're you know going forward, we just want to make make sure that uh, oh, well, I'd like to make sure that um, that that um, you know certainly my wife has the um, ability to keep exploring those talents. That's why we went into the whole Brahmin breeding thing. I just there seemed to be an undeniable talent my wife had for that, and and make sure we enjoy the horses. You know, I dead set went through a period where I I. I won't say hated, that's a pretty tough word, hated training horses, but I certainly got over it. And I think that's the time when it caught up to where I was using the horse as a number to progress me up this bit of a um, um, false sort of a journey and just to build wealth. And when I worked out that maybe that wasn't all it was jacked up to be, I think that slowly turned around to come back to where I started enjoying my horses. So, mate, we want to enjoy our horses. I've got a five-year-old son and um, enjoy our family and here we are at Capella in the middle of COVID-19 with the cutting and and I hope that I can keep a, a better perspective you know I got here and the guys are worried about the ground and I said guys don't worry about it I said you, you put a cutting on let's enjoy it and um, yeah I, I, my goal is we sat Wednesday night with all us horse trainers I said my goal is to go to maturity the biggest show all year and come through that herd and remember my run because I can remember I can remember anxiety being to a point in me I couldn't remember a cow that I cut. I'd have to check with my wife after a run. Did I cut the black baldy with a tear on the right, or did the, I? I can just remember being so wound up and almost crooking the guts that I don't remember anything. So I, I don't want to do that again. Awesome, Jason. If there was someone that was interested, I guess in starting a journey in performance horses, and you could give them three pretty simple golden nuggets of information very simply that i guess maybe go over from what ray has taught you or from what you've learned in your time if you could just give them three very simple pieces of advice that they could adopt whether it be in their training of the new horse that they're setting for an event or in their attitude i guess when they head out there every day what would that be yeah, that's a good question, and that's that's put me in the hot spot, isn't it? Well, I tell you, the first thing comes straight to my head. You need to go down the road where the horse is your partner, because I've heard successful horse trainers saying a good horse is like a good slave. If I say come here, they say yes, sir. And the good horseman with the horse as a partner will beat you. You may get lucky, but they'll beat you. So you need to look at a horsemanship type. Uh, developing your understanding style from that point of view where the horse is your partner. So um, that's one. Um, two, you, one of my biggest problems was I, I would admire everyone else. I, you know, I, 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 I certainly probably come across like a, a cocky sort of a guy because I, I, I spoke a lot and whatever, but I would sell out on anything I had going for me because I saw someone better that I believe better than me at a show on the weekend and on Monday, I'm like, oh, I've got to do more of this. That guy was phenomenal. 
you've got to ride horses how it feels good to you. And John Mitchell, those words ring in my ear. I'd ring him and he'd say, mate, and, and he believed in me more than I believed in myself. You've got to work horses how it feels good to you. So if you try and be like someone else totally, you'll, you'll just run into, tr- into trouble. You've got to allow yourself time to develop understanding and you'll develop your own style. It's your own way of presenting things to a horse that they will understand and they'll just, just come up. So is it that could be dangerous if the cocky person's hearing that, but that, that's, that's just something I believe you know, could be number two. Number three, well, haven't you put me on the, on the spot here? I, I just think you've got to keep searching. To me, that horse with a good learning frame of mind keeps searching for a release you know ray hunt would say it's feel timing and balance and one other thing and he said he didn't know what the other thing was but his friend tom dorrance did he said his friend tom dorrance had something very special well i believe ray had it too so there's that physical and the mental the physical okay his weight moved over the inside hind here therefore i've got to move it off so he can load on the outside hind and turn properly that's the physical side of thing his ribs were in the road you know, his pole was too low, whatever. That's physical. The mental. Okay, he's not willing. I've got to encourage him to try. Okay, so that's mental. Ray would say it's it's physical and mental and it's almost spiritual. It's, it's another thing. So he was talking about developing a relationship with a horse. And to me, that's why I don't like the, stay, the, the slave thing, saying a good horse is a slave. Um it's 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 getting willing communication i feel like i'm only just scratching the surface now with getting a willing communication i don't handle a horse near as much now i'm just dying to go to a cut and and work horses with them guys that i work horses with to see if they see a change because i believe i over communicated a lot because i was so hell-bent on getting control and getting what i want because i had this picture in my head if you can get a horse to decide to help you and, and not discourage him that, that you're the captain of this ship and you're leading the way, but to encourage him to make some decisions on his own and try and keep his confidence up. So it's that extra thing. It's not mental. It's that kind of spiritual, that kind of... I'm talking about a horse's spirit, so I'm talking about his heart, you know, hooking in, trying for you. So this batch of horses, I've almost got this batch of futurity horses, almost got pushing through my foot to get to a cow. I would never allow that to happen because it's like they're not respecting the boundaries I've created. They've got to stay off this foot. Well, the fact that they're willing to try, I'm almost putting up with some stuff to reward that. So it's 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 the, it's keeping a learning frame of mind, I guess, in yourself. That was the third thing. I'm getting off track here a bit, but to me, that's the third thing. You, I've been cutting now for 16, going on 17 years, and I literally feel like I'm just starting. I can't wait to get to a cutting again and work horses with you know them boys I, I usually work with well jason that's been an incredible uh interview mate thank you very much for doing this with us tonight um you know thank you for inviting us up here this weekend and um you know we're really looking forward to the rest of the weekend and and just thank you very much for that mate thank you for having me and i hope i haven't bored you too much thank you not at all thanks linda for coming in too it was great to have you on here Thanks, Pax, and good luck with this crop of horses, Jason. Hopefully we'll get to a, um, a show soon and get to show them off. That's right. Now, I think I think with all we've learnt through this whole whole COVID thing, we, we get to these shows, we're going to enjoy it. So, looking forward to it. 
Well, thanks guys for listening in to that episode with Mr. Jason Leach and a big shout out to you, mate. Thank you very much for doing that and sitting down with us and, and helping us out up there. It was a great time and a, and a heck of a lot of fun. So thanks for that, mate. But that's going to about do us for this week's episode. So we sure hope you enjoyed that and we'll be sure to catch you next time. I'm not a first-class citizen I know every backtrack out of here I'll outrun you if I can Feel the rush, the push and chub I'm like a flame almost a fire And if you're trying to work my buttons You've got a madman dark desire One shot, two shot, baby Let's ride this rodeo Three shot, four, five, Shot.